Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to your last uh, podcast with us as a co-host. How are you doing? I'm strangely nervous. It's funny. I had the jitters when we recorded our first podcast and I'm feeling those today again. So it's a, it's a strange uh, feeling. I'm coming full circle. <laughs> well, it's that, or is it the jitters because now you're an administrator as a, as associate dean and, and administrators are always nervous about being on the record. <laughs> Still have uh, two more weeks before I step into that uh, role. So it's great to be uh, looking after various files and connecting with colleagues. And I'm sorry that in terms of, of the podcast, it, it means I'm stepping away from it. But I think we can be proud of, of the three years. I mean, this is also our third year anniversary. So I think that's a cause for, for celebration. But how are you, Steve? I'm pretty good, although I forgot to bring champagne for the celebration. <laughs> It's a bit early, early, yes. It's been a very busy time for us preparing for your next thing. Both of us reading a 400-page tome about uh, Mm -hmm. how the military should be reformed. So when you read the Arbor Report, were there any surprises or any omissions that that you noticed? Either things that were there that you weren't expecting or things that weren't there that you were expecting? Yeah, there were two things I was really expecting to find and they weren't there. The first one was the uh, external oversight mechanism. And so many people were talking about the creation of an inspector general role, and that didn't materialize. And the way that it was framed in in the report was was interesting. First of all, she mentioned that she didn't really receive any guidance or or recommendation on on that point, that she was going to be going for an external monitor instead to make sure her recommendations get implemented. And that ultimately, and this she may have said at the press conference, rather than having included it in her report, but that if her recommendations get implemented, Mm -hmm. then, you know, something like an inspector general isn't really needed. And I mean, we both uh, wrote some op-eds about the Arbour uh, report. Yours should be coming out shortly. But to place so much faith in the recommendations actually being implemented promptly kind of clashes with her core finding of the report (laughs) is that, you know, there have been so many reviews and so many studies done and still uh, implementation has been faulty. So to have so much, placing so much faith on on those recommendations being implemented swiftly as uh, the pathway to improvement and the reason for why an inspector general is not needed kind of struck me as odd. So that was the first thing that I noticed. And the second thing is that there was no recommendation for an independent reporting system or or mechanism. And so there are multiple lines through which victims and survivors of sexual misconduct can report. And there was this discussion about perhaps creating an independent reporting system that would be a bit 
clearer for service members to use, but also, you know, that wouldn't be part of the chain of command. And also that would facilitate data collection on, on incidents uh, mm -hmm. and centralize the, the data about incidents. And, and we didn't see that. And the reason for that, according to Arbor, is, well, the recommendations is that complaints would be going through the Human Rights Tribunal, and then civilian courts would be uh, in charge of sexual assaults and, and criminal offenses related to uh, sexual misconduct. So those those two aspects stood out because I was really expecting to mm -hmm. find some specific recommendations on, on those two points, and they were very different uh, in the report. I wouldn't say they're omissions per se, but perhaps different from what was expected. I mean, we're going to get to read your op-ed in a few days, but tell us what you were struck by, <laughs> or if you think there were any uh, omissions or things missing in that uh, 400 well, page document. You're, you're assuming a whole lot. There's no guarantee this op-ed that I wrote will be published, although I'll post it on my blog if I can't get it published. But I think there's a couple of things. I think you're right that the, the lack of an inspector general was striking and the hope that if everything goes well, there will be no need for anything. It's striking for a couple of reasons. One is, as you pointed out, we failed in the past. So why expect this time to be different? And we'll get to that question in a second. But the second thing is, is that there was an opportunity here to make more significant changes, not just on sexual misconduct and sexual harassment and sexual assault, but on larger reforms of, this, of the CAF. And she had a limited mandate but she really stayed within that mandate because she could have proposed an, an inspector general whose primary mandate might have been at the outset, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, that kind of thing, but would have a more responsibility than that because the CAF probably needs to have more eyes on it or more dedicated eyes on it for overseeing it to deal with the abuse of power and entitlement problems that have been rife within the CAF. My op-ed piece that I wrote and hopefully will come out is about that part of the thing. And maybe that wasn't, you know, there's a lot going on within the, the Kenyan military than, than sexual misconduct. And I think the abuse of power thing is bigger than that. That sexual misconduct is a part of that. And so she could have proposed a, something, some sort of institutional reform that could have been, had a broader punch. And I, I think you're right that it's putting too much trust in the system to, to not have that. On the other hand, the question ultimately is, who does this inspector general report to? And I think that's one thing that stymies a lot of the stuff, because you can't have anything that's truly independent. You have to have it report to somebody. And it was fun to see the work that Phil Legasse and I have done cited in the, well, we really can't give it to parliament because we can't really trust parliament to do this stuff, mm -hmm. part of the Arbor report. And so ultimately, they have to report to the minister. So I guess that was something else that I would have liked to have seen more is, well, it was primarily about the CAF, it was about the defense team as a whole. And I would have liked for her to have addressed the other part of the defense team more. Mm. It's a long document, 400 pages, I get it. And she does cover the Department of National Defense, both specifically in one section of it, and throughout the document about, you know, changing responsibilities for this, that, and that. But I, I think she could have spent more time actually talking about DND because it is a not as necessarily a whole of government effort, but it's a whole of defense team effort that needs to be rethought and recalibrated. And so I think that could have been done better. So Stephanie, the big question right now the media was asking that day when the Arbor report came out is to the ministers, why is this time going to be any different? Do you, as someone who studied this stuff for quite some time, think that this will be different? If so, you know, from a different scale of zero to, to 100, where 100 is, wow, we can't even recognize people at this anymore. It's completely different. Uh, you know, where do you see this being in terms of uh, how much of a difference this report and implementation is going to make? Well, the minister is different, and I think that matters. The CBS is different. I think that matters. So I think I would give them both the benefit of the doubt as uh, new people into those specific roles for leading change. The other thing is that, you know, throughout the report, we see that Arbor 
emphasizes the importance of more civilian input and participation into CAF decision-making and processes. And I think that recommendation is, is in line with some of the points you raised in your unpublished uh, op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, you know, maybe by the time some listeners uh, tune in, it will be published and included in the show notes. But yeah, that, that crucial piece of more civilian input into CAP decision-making processes, if, if that's done in, in a systematic way, then I think that can genuinely improve and, and bring more transparency and bring more diversity of thought, frankly, into, into CAF procedures and, and help things overall. I mean, the question remains, though, where are all of these external civilians going to be coming from? <laughs> the security and defense community is quite small in Canada already, and that part of it is not really specified in, in the report, which, you know, if, I, if I'm to find fault in the report is another weakness of it is that there are some really great recommendations and they're fairly specific, but there are some clear implementation challenges that are not addressed in the report. And that's going to be up for the, the broader defense team to figure out. But a lot of the recommendations will be hard to implement with the current personnel shortfalls that we're seeing mm. in the armed forces, especially that that missing middle. So when it comes to a lot of the recommendations tied to training and, and leadership, I think those recommendations make sense to me. But I'm also worried when you're asking about implementation, how those will actually be rolled out with the current personnel situation being what it is. But I think if we stay focused on on some of the key principles she's raised throughout this exercise, and this is what I focused on in, in my op-ed, <laughs> The Citizen, and we can include that in the show notes as well, is this push for greater transparency and more civilian input and, and participation, especially the input of external civilians, so civilians who are not part of the, the defense team structure. There's also great news for academics and researchers in there, so linked to the SSRB or CAF-led ethics process for approving research done by, by academics that deal with the military. And there's this promise that uh, the chief professional conduct and culture will be releasing a database with all of the research that's done internally that's tied to culture change. So in terms of our role as doing some research on personnel issues, misconduct and sexual assault and the broader efforts of culture change, this will be incredibly useful. Not only will it allow us not to duplicate efforts that are done internally, but, you know, the data that's collected by units like DGMPRA, the unit uh, responsible for military personnel research within the defense team, if that's made accessible to us, that, that really helps our own research projects that are carried out in university settings. So, I mean, that is rather niche in terms of the broader conversation on CAF culture change, but for us, it's very significant as a research community in the field of security and defense. And the research community in the field of security defense should thank you for those two items. Well, I think those are, are really widespread views. I know that on military personnel, I'm really lucky to have a close collaborative relationship with Dr. Irina Goldenberg, a relationship that you've facilitated through the CDSN. But we shouldn't be relying on personal connections to know what's being done internally on these issues. And when I talk to folks who, who work in this space, like uh, Dr. Maya Eckler, we had similar concerns over the ethics gatekeeping when we're, yeah. you know, definitely submitted to our own very rigorous uh, ethics processes within a university setting. And then the, the lack of transparency when it comes to what's being done internally and what kind of data is available and could be shared with the broader scientific community. Well, I was, I was just teasing a little bit because uh, I know that 
when you gave your recommendations to the Arbor process, that, that those were two items that were mm -hmm. ones that you had you'd recommended. And it was good to see your recommendations then make it into, into the document. I, one of the puzzling things about this is her word of the use of the word external. And I, that's something I do talk about a little bit, not bad, which is that sometimes when she's trying to refer to external civilians, she's referring to the Minister of National Defense and the Department of National Defense. And sometimes she's referring to people like you and me and whatever random consultants. And I would like to change the culture so that way the Minister of National Defense and Department of National Defense are not seen as external to the military enterprise, but are integral to it. And I think that's one of the problems that the, that we have right now is that the military sees noises coming from DND and from the minister as being not, you know, things that they can ignore because it's not from the within, within the military. And so we need to change the boundary so that way those 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 elements are within the boundary as opposed to being voices they occasionally have to listen to. I do think that it's going to be striking down the road of who are the civilians they're going to they're going to invite into this process. I asked that at the stakeholder roundtable they had right around the when the report came out because I do worry about consultants and it was fun to see Arbor criticize the consultants who had given the CPCC the command of professional conduct and culture, a certain consultant company gave them advice on something that Arbor was op recommending the direct opposite of. And Arbor was very clear about that. So it was, it was kind of fun to see the pushback uh, there. But, you know, we'll see who they bring in. And of course, all this can change with a new minister of national defense who has different priorities, different interests. I think one of the reasons why this is different, as you said, is we have a different minister. And it's not just any minister. It's not just that it's not Saijon. It's that Minister Anand has this background in corporate governance. She has a background as a law prof. I think it's very important that a uh, Minister Anand has this background and in this interest, and this has been obviously one of the most important things she's been working on. So I think it's different from those perspectives, but there, there's also something else that's different this time, which is that with Vance and McDonald and the other officers, the senior officers who've been discredited, it's going to be very hard for the military wherever to push back against these things because they've had the chance to do this themselves and they failed to do it. And while Air is more sympathetic and, and more aligned, the key is that below him, there aren't officers who can really go to the media or go to the conservative party or go to the NDP and say, you know, we're being, being treated unfairly. The political capital of the opponents to reform is quite low at this moment in time. And so it should be relatively more straightforward for the minister to impose her will than it would be if at, at a time where the senior officer class of, of the military was at full fighting strength. But right now they have been weakened by the performance of their former leaders. So I think that makes this time different as well. Yeah, no, all great points. I agree. So we should probably move on to our, our next topic, Steve. Yeah, our next topic is the NATO summit. And both of us are disappointed that we can't be at the NATO summit. In the past, we've, we've hung out together at the side party. But this time, there is no side party. Besides that, what else do, should we expect at the summit? Hmm. Like you, I'm, I'm disappointed that we can't uh, go to Madrid, really live and breathe it. But yeah, these summits are regular occurrences for, for NATO. And uh, it was really clear to me in the research I did for my book that they really set the rhythm for the alliance's day-to-day -day work. And uh, even though they're routine, I do think that this year is, is quite different and makes it a particularly interesting summit. First of all, because there's war on the European continent. And so there's been a dramatic escalation of hostility since uh, 2014. Second, there's the unveiling of a new strategic concept. It hasn't happened since 2010. So it's going to be interesting to see how that document was drafted and the, the types of issues that are emphasized. For sure, Russia and China are going to be front and center and have forced the rethink of NATO's deterrence and defense posture. And then the other 
huge item and everyone's talking about this is the application of Sweden and Finland to become members of NATO. And of course, yesterday, uh, the Secretary General was hosting delegations from Turkey, Sweden, and Finland to try to find a compromise uh, so that Turkey would no longer oppose Swedish and Finnish accession to NATO. So we'll see next week if those efforts were successful and if uh, it'll be announced that Sweden and Finland can be accepted as, as members. So it was interesting to see NATO offering a, a platform for mediation about a week before the summit is to take place in Madrid. So to me, that's why this particular summit stands out compared to past ones. And on the agenda, we'll have Ukraine, obviously, and other NATO partners who are at risk. So Georgia comes to mind, of course, the strategic concepts on the agenda, deterrence and defense, and, and Sweden and Finland. And usually it's, a, it's also a chance to renew some commitments on uh, current NATO operations. And then as far as Canada is concerned, there's going to be probably further details on that center of excellence on, on climate security. And you'll be involved intellectual efforts surrounding climate security, because with some co-directors of the CDSN, you secured a collaborative network grant. So in a way, uh, I'm sure you'll be paying really close attention to that aspect of what Canada says uh, during the summit. Yes, we have got a research team working on, on the new Climate Security Center of Excellence. I think my focus more is on, are they going to change enhanced forward presence? And if so, how? That, you know, it was very hard to get the Germans to agree to some lasting mission in the Baltics in the aftermath of the seizure of Crimea eight years ago. And we eventually worked towards something that suggested a lasting but not permanent presence. That, that's why they call it a hands forward presence, something that would be there for a while, of a thousand troops in, the, in each of the major countries near Russia. So Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland. And so they're clearly expanding that to include Romania and Bulgaria and maybe some other countries. But there's also discussion of making them larger rather than a battle group having a brigade, which would be twice or three times larger in each country. And if that were to happen, that would require Canada probably to increase the number of troops it has in Latvia, or it would change the balance of power in Latvia if some other country, let's say the United States, becomes a major force contributing country. So I don't know how far those discussions have gone, but it does seem to me that this is one of those points in time where there might be some conversation about changing the size of that mission. And given the aforementioned personnel crisis we have in Canada, making, you know, going from 500 troops to 1,000 troops doesn't seem like a lot. But when you're already short 15, 16% maybe of your entire force, that becomes a, a, an impediment to making a bigger commitment. That personnel shortage may cause us to be more resistant than we might otherwise be about making a bigger commitment in Latvia. So that's the part of the story next week that I'm more, more attuned to. I tend not to pay attention to the words in the strategic concept because I often get uh, overcome by events as soon as Russia invades another country. But I do pay attention to what that commitment's going to look like. And I, th I think that where my attention is going to be. I, I think the Finland-Sweden thing is a foregone conclusion. You know, th that's happening much faster than anybody would have expected. I don't know how the Turks are going to get bought off, but they'll find a way to extract something from NATO. But I think it's going to go forward. So I think for me, the big uncertainty is what is going to be the commitment to Ukraine and what's going to be the commitment to Ukraine's neighbors that are in the alliance. And as you noted, what's going to happen to those who are outside of the alliance? I think that's something we have to think really hard about. Well, EFP has already changed a lot. So they've announced the, the doubling of the battle groups and more, more countries participating as host nations. France taking a lead role in, in Romania. 
Uh, so we're seeing more buy-in from some of the more uh, influential members of NATO. France, up to date, had not invested as heavily. So I think that taking a, a command role for a battle group in, in Romania is a significant development. Then another very important point, although that might be getting down into the weeds a little bit, but that framework nations concept that initially was driving the EFP model is changing so that shape is now owning enhanced forward presence. So what that's likely to deliver is more standardization across battle group as the perceived threat is higher and a bigger emphasis on improving mobility and potential reinforcements in the event that there is a Russian incursion. So the prepositioning of equipment, working with the EU to really leverage European infrastructure for that mobilization if needed, and having more standby forces, so calling on allies to be able to uh, deploy more forces on short notice. So there have been, since February 24th, some significant developments, but I think you're right, force structure is definitely going to be on the menu of items to be discussed as it pertains to EFP and the defense of uh, NATO's eastern flank. What do you think of more centralization of having Canada have less influence over how things are done in, in Latvia and having NATO headquarters in Mons, Belgium, that shape headquarters have more influence? Is, is that a good thing? Do you think that would be better for Canada or would it limit or reduce Canada's influence? In this context, I think more coordination, both political and military, mm-hmm. across battle groups is a good thing. Things can escalate quite quickly in this kind of climate when it comes to, to NATO-Russia relations. So having more predictability mm-hmm. in terms of the, the battle group model, I think, is prudent in this particular context. So I think I would think bigger picture here, for sure, Canada might be able to exercise a little less discretion in terms of how it designs battle group activities. But the bigger picture is that this is an extremely volatile environment and having more standardized practices and better coordination across battle groups overseen by NATO is probably a good idea. What do you think? I agree. I think whatever marginal loss we have in influence is more than made up for the fact that we should not be thinking about these things as three or four or five or six separate missions. While Lithuania is the target of the week because Lithuania is not letting train, Russian trains go into Kaliningrad, the reality is, is that the Russians probably, if they were to get aggressive towards the Baltics, would do something more than just you know attack one or address one of them. It would be against all, all of them or some set of them. And so the idea of having every uh, one of these missions be sort of out there on their own is just not, doesn't make sense from a NATO perspective. It makes sense for them to be more coherent. In fact, the whole framework nation thing was something that I found confusing because it seemed to leave way too much up to for individual countries to design a mission and much less coherence across the board. It's not like the planes that'd be flying over Eastern Europe would be only commanded to help out the Germans in Lithuania or only helping out what's gone over Estonia or over, over Latvia, that you need to have an alliance command structure because a lot of the stuff would be simultaneous and require lots of coordination. And I think that's what we're learning from watching the Ukrainian war is that we don't have coordination and you have separate lines of attack or defense, things go awry. And this is what the Russians did quite poorly. And I don't think we should imitate their, hey, let's attack four sectors at once, but not coordinate across them. That led them to defeat near Kiev and, and all the rest. There was an item that came across the news yesterday, so I thought we'd talk about that a little bit, which is NORAD modernization, that we finally had the announcement that Minister and I have been promising about what we'd be spending on revitalizing the weapon systems, or at least the sensor systems in the North. Was there anything about what happened yesterday? Uh, That would be Monday. 
uh, June 20th that stuck out to you? Well, I was listening to that press conference through the prism of the upcoming NATO summit. And I mm -hmm. think there were some deliberate signals there for that, that NATO audience because burden sharing tends to be on the summit agenda and this year will be no different. There's that famous 2% uh, guidance on, on defense spending in Canada will not be meeting it by uh, the agreed upon deadline. But there are two things that Minister Anand said that caught my attention. And I thought, oh, this is definitely pre-summit signaling. And the first one was to comment on the upward trajectory and, and defense spending. So what NATO is looking at, of course, is the 2% and also what allies are spending in terms of R&D. And what they want to see is the trend lines going in the right direction. And so Canada is quite motivated to be be talking about uh, the, those trend lines. And, and you saw this emphasis on the 70% increase uh, that was promised in SSC and the new money through these NORAD upgrades. And the second thing that caught my attention was Minister Anand's reference to NATO's Western and Northern flank. We don't talk a lot about the Western and Northern flank. We talk more about the Eastern and Southern flank, but I think it's in Canada's interest to say, hey, listen, what Canada and the U.S. invest in terms of North American defense capabilities contribute to transatlantic security. And this is something the Europeans may tend to forget. So I think reminding NATO allies and partners of the North American defense efforts is probably an astute communication strategy ahead of the NATO summit. Yeah, I, I was more focused. I'm still trying to figure out the patterns here and, and what they mean. People are have been playing up the new threat environment. And I think some of the new threat environment makes a lot of sense to think about. Other parts I'm a little less concerned about. I think Russia's increased risk tolerance, it's, it's aggression, is something that we need to take seriously. That it's harder to deter somebody who is willing to take bigger risks. And so we need to think about this stuff more seriously. So I think Anand, by talking about the new threat environment, that stuff made more sense to me. And people have been hyping hypersonic missiles. I'm, I'm a little less concerned about that because I, I don't think we have the ability to actually do anything once we get the warning, besides, you know, kiss our loved ones goodbye, potentially, if we want to get really dark about this. So I think we need to sensors, but I'm not sure the details about can we shoot down incoming hypersonic missiles? No, we can't. But we can't shoot down intercontinental ballistic missiles either. We don't have the capability for it, uh, not at all. And the Americans are trying to develop the capability for it, and they're not that close. So I think what well, it does make sense that that we need to have better situation awareness about the North. I think this is part of our claims to sovereignty to the high North. I think that if we want to be engaged in this relationship with the United States over NORAD, we have to commit money to that. We have to provide the stuff that we're supposed to provide to that partnership. It's not a partnership if we don't update our side of stuff. So I think this all makes sense. It is incredibly expensive, $40 billion over the next 20 years, which is a lot of money and it may go up from there. And so I'm also interested in getting more specifics about how this money is spent, how much of it will make it to the communities in the North to help improve their infrastructure. I think that would be an important way to achieve multiple objectives at the same time. It's incredibly expensive to operate in the North. And so if we can do a better job of serving the people in the North and listening to what they need, then this massive investment will have a greater multiplier effect than if we just throw up lots of satellites into the sky and say that we can find, you know, see things more clearly. I think that's part of it, but I, I think there's there's stuff on the ground in the North that we need to do. And that's going to require negotiating with people in the North and, and, and giving them stuff that they, they want and desire, not just us telling them, oh, we're going to put a base out of here.
Yeah, it, it was interesting to hear that mentioned in the announcement yesterday about Indigenous consultation and Indigenous businesses, Northern businesses being included in the supply chain for, for these upgrades. I um, also was pleased to hear that there's going to be compensation for consultations so with Indigenous leaders, communities, groups uh, are to be involved in a meaningful way, removing some of the barriers to participate in that through financial compensation for travel or for time uh, shows that they're putting their money where their, their mouth is. But again, this is really early stages. So we'll see exactly how meaningful that that engagement is and how that actually translates into benefit for Northern communities. Yeah, I, th I think that does represent some progress. So of course, the devil is the, in the details in implementation. Mm -hmm. So let's move on. You have a, a graduation to go to. So I I asked our readership, our listenership, to come up with some questions to ask you since this is the last time we can put your feet to the fire. For the near term, uh, we do hope to have, we do plan to have you back when you promote your book in the fall. I did get to see the cover of it. Can you tell us what the name of the book again is and, and what it's about briefly? Yeah, yeah, sure. And thank you again so much, Steve, for reading the book and providing some comments before I submitted the final manuscript. The book is called Deploying Feminism, the Role of Gender in NATO Operations. It'll be published in the fall catalog with Oxford University Press. I chose the Bridging the Gap series because to me, this book does bridge the gap between the work that's done in academia and then what might be relevant for a practitioner audience. And uh, just to give you a short summary of, of the book, it's about why NATO as a military alliance adopted the Women, Peace and Security Agenda as a policy priority. Uh, previously, my work on NATO was uh, focused on, on operations. It was focused on deterrence. And about 10 years ago, I started to notice this shift towards women, peace and security it was very present in the public diplomacy of NATO and also gained prominence with the mission in Afghanistan. So I thought it was an interesting question because having women, peace and security as part of NATO activities essentially pleases no one. It doesn't please the, the feminists and women's group who lobbied for women, peace and security. They criticize the co-optation of the agenda by military actors. And then it doesn't really please the military either because advancing gender equality is generally not seen as a military responsibility. So the Pope traces the, the implementation of women, peace and security at NATO and I showcase this at the strategic level down to the tactical level, looking at a few operations. Those are the, the empirical chapters focused on enhanced forward presence, the NATO mission in Iraq and uh, K4, the NATO mission in Kosovo. And then through my fieldwork and interviews, I show that military commanders are able to leverage gender-based analysis to suit their purposes and their mission objectives, like engaging women in host countries to improve intelligence assessments. But ultimately, the original intent of women, peace, and security, so that's really increasing women's participation in conflict resolution and advancing gender equality to improve security outcomes, sort of gets lost in the process. So that's the story behind the book. And again, thank you so much for, for the feedback. It was really helpful to get input, not only from women, peace and security experts, but also from NATO experts, because the machinery of NATO is so important to understand how implementation happens. So it was really uh, helpful to rely on your previous NATO work and certainly 
were uh, extensively cited in the manuscript. Oh, well, that's that's all we academics care about is to be cited. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I read the book, as, as you noted, and I think it's going to make a really important contribution to a variety of discussions, not just about women, peace, and security, which I think is very important, not just about how does NATO do things, but also how, how we change the world, which is... We have these norms, but then we have to implement them. And then in that implementation process is very complicated and that may do, do violence to the norms that we're trying to implement. And I think your book takes that very, quite very seriously and what causes that to happen and, and the consequences. So I think that's gonna be a really a valuable addition to international relations scholarship, but not just to the uh, worlds of, of NATO and women, peace and security. So I think it's it's a really cool book. And I, I look forward to, your, to watching your book tour traveling across North America to promote it in the fall. Yeah, not just North America. I was in Sweden last week and uh, I got to uh, talk about the book there and to show uh, them that the cover art that I had just received by, by email from Oxford University Press. So it was, it was great to do that in Sweden because not only was it exciting to be in Sweden because of all of the talks surrounding their application to NATO, but also because Sweden was the first country to come out with a feminist foreign policy. And Sweden also hosts the bulk of NATO training on women, peace and security. So the training of gender advisors, for instance, they do the, the two week course and, and many other courses as well. So it was uh, very fitting to be able to give one of the first book talks, let's say in Sweden. Fantastic. So that was the first question uh, for you as our feature interview subject of the week. The next question by somebody in our audience was, and I'm pretty sure you're going you're to opt out of this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What were your best and worst interviews as a co-host? Oh, I know. I'm, I'm game for that. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's really uh, important to reflect back on what we did. So I think back to the very first interview with General Jenny Carignan, for instance, and I was so, so grateful that she said yes, because our, our podcast essentially didn't exist yet when we asked her to take part in this interview and we sort of cornered her at the Kingston Conference on International Security and, and asked her to come on to the, to the podcast. And I'm, I'm so grateful that she said yes, and it opened the door to other senior level guests to come on. Uh, but we were just starting out then. And I when I think back to this, this interview, I suppose it wasn't so much the interview skills, but the, with the setup, we were clearly inexperienced. We were in a hotel room. There was a bit of echo and then there were a bunch of sirens. So in terms of really being focused on the interviewee and really being fully absorbed in the conversation, this is one that stand out where it, it was difficult to be present uh, because of, of everything that was going around and also the KCIS conference uh, below and, and these technical worries of, about sound. And what I've learned over time uh, doing these interviews, and, and we've done a lot over the last three years, is the importance to really have a, a calm space so that you can be fully present when you're interviewing the guest. That really definitely makes for a better interview. I think as co-hosts, our, our best interview was probably with the, the CDS and the deputy minister. So it was Jody Thomas and, and General Air, just because we prepared that interview a lot. We coordinated quite tightly and I really appreciated to be 
able to do that interview with you because very often we tend to do interviews separately just because it's efficient. And also sometimes, you know, the guests might feel more comfortable with a more uh, intimate setting. And I, I was thinking, especially with, with our um, emerging scholars, that's certainly the case. <laughs> Being interviewed by two co-hosts can seem uh, maybe a little intense when you're first bringing out your research in, into this public space. But to me, that that interview with the CDS and, and deputy minister was really memorable and I think was probably quite strong in terms of the, the, the questions we came up with and, and our dynamic as co-hosts in terms of, uh, you know, juggling two, two VIPs coming on the, the podcast. Yeah, I really like that one too. I was just listening to it again because I was trying to make sure that I got right what the deputy minister was saying for the op-ed I was writing. And I think you were asking really good questions uh, that day. Not that you don't do them on other, other days, but I think, I, I think you got Jody Thomas, the deputy minister at the time and now the national security advisor, to actually make news on our podcast, that she said some things that she hadn't said before. And I thought that was really cool. Someone asked, how would you imagine the CAF given the opportunity to lead it? So if somebody makes you CDS and you can, or, or the minister, one of the two, and you can change it entirely, what would you do? <laughs> change it entirely. <laughs> how would you reimagine the CAF was the way the question was put? I've been thinking a lot about the, the balance between the domestic operations and, and operations abroad. Mm -hmm. And and to me, that would be driving a lot about how I would reimagine the CAF. The experience of the, the pandemic also provoked a lot of thinking with regards to the way that we employ the military and also the, the division of labor between our reserve force and the, the regular force. And I just brought home the importance of having reservists who are tied with communities and the importance of their ability to respond when it comes to these emergencies that occur within our country. So I think that I would definitely be in investing a lot of thinking in terms of the, the division of labor between the reservists and, and the regular force, especially as it pertains to the anticipated uptick in uh, domestic operations and demands that are placed on the armed forces. So I really think that we need to rethink that. I, I don't think the solution is necessarily thinking that away or wishing that away, thinking that somehow uh, we'll find an alternative to calling on the military yeah. for these national emergencies. So in the spirit of wanting to improve national emergency preparedness in the future, I think that we either need to, to grow the reserve or rethink the division of labor between the rec force and, and the reservists so that, that the military as a whole is, is uh, not only better prepared for, for these national emergencies, but also that service members feel like they are doing and, and living a military experience mm -hmm. that's consistent to what they expected when they first signed up. And to me, this gap between expectations and reality for, for service members is really key to, to retention and for high job satisfaction. And, and that's a part that, to me, we need to get right. And that would be at the center of how I would reimagine the military. Well, it was fun for me to ask that question somebody else wrote because I've been teasing you about one of our colleagues that you know, Helena Carreras, who is a Portuguese sociologist who led one of the CDSM partners, Ergomos, the research, European research group on armed forces and society. Well, she was recently named Minister of Defense. So we have a professor in, in Portugal doing that job. We have a professor actually doing that job in Canada. So, you know, I don't know if we've had any associate deans do that job. 
uh, <laughs> but I think I think there's a pathway for you to become the the Minister of National Defense, and you can reimagine the CAF as you see fit with all the constraints that come with all the path dependence of what the CAF is and what the D, what D and D is. Uh, so I, I I can't think of a better person to be in that position than you, but I know it'd be really stressful. So I don't wish that upon anybody at this moment in time. Okay, uh, next question, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you're tired of me. You're moving on with your life. But somebody asked if you were to do another podcast in the future, what would you podcast about? I would podcast about work-life balance. I, you know, if I'm being completely honest, one of my dirty little secrets is I really love self-help books. Oh, really? <laughs> I love having these conversations with, with colleagues and friends, both in the military and in academia about how they find a balance in their life with a, a busy schedule. And that's what I liked about not only the name of our podcast, Battle Rhythm, but also the question we asked a lot of our guests, what's your battle rhythm like right now, is to, to get a sense of the personal. We're so focused on people's expertise and what they do, and we scrutinize decisions and the way those decisions are implemented. But but at the end of the day, we're, we're all people. And I'm really curious about those personal experiences. You know, of course, my first choice would be to return to ballot rhythm. But if we're going to have another podcast in this space and not necessarily tied to security and defense, it would be, you know, that that work-life balance. Okay. Two last, actually, well, okay, three more, three last questions. Is there anyone you would have wanted to have on the podcast that you didn't get a chance to interview with? And why would you choose that person? Well, if I'm going to be frank, I wish I had been there to interview Minister Anon with you. <laughs> but it happened on very short notice. And so it, it didn't work with the proposed schedule. But yeah, I guess that's the, the one thing I, I kind of regret from the last six months. That would have been wonderful to do that with you as, as co-host. So that one's an easy one for me because uh, <laughs> I'm still... Still, uh, hoping that we'll get another opportunity to do that uh, together. Well, I think she's pretty available for more interviews. So maybe next time we'll, we'll have you be a, a, a special guest co-host. And, and yeah, now that I've said this on record, yeah. <laughs> 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 tied. Well, all right, now I have in my mind the the image from Godfather Three of uh, every time they pull me out, I, they, they pull, I try to get out, and they pull me back in. So, what surprised you about co-hosting over the past three years? What did you learn about yourself? That it's really good to do something out of your your comfort zone. I think you were you were right to to push me at the outset when you asked me to go on this podcast journey with you. First, I remember feeling panic. <laughs> but once that panic subsided, I, I really felt tremendously honored and proud. I met you when I was a graduate student, and that's why I posted that picture today on Twitter, because we met over 15 years ago when I, I was a PhD student. You were a professor at McGill, and you were already an established scholar with an international reputation. So to now, you know, when you asked me to be able to join you on this endeavor, it really made me feel like I had come a, a really long way that, that you would consider me as a potential co-host. So that's the, the warm and, and fuzzy uh, aspect to it. But I'm, I'm not going to lie, this didn't, you know, I, I don't do a lot of media interviews because I have a more introverted nature. And so the idea to host a podcast every two weeks scared me. But getting out of the comfort zone, I think, was, was really good for professional development. I got to meet super interesting people. And it does get easier with practice and with time. And I think we've got a good sound now. We've certainly have some brand recognition as well. And I'm really happy that the podcast is on solid footing for uh, future co-hosts. And we'll 
make announcements in July. We're going to take a break after this week so that Melissa, our, our producer, can get some time off. And then we'll start up in July with announcement about how we're going to have future co-hosts, how that's going to work out. We're not completely settled on what we're doing, but uh, we'll save that announcement for July. Uh, usually we end the podcast with my favorite pop culture uh, stuff, but we've never really got a chance to hear what you're watching and reading, Steph. So I'm going to leave it to you. What are you watching and reading uh, these days to distract you from everything else? Or what? What's your favorite pop culture things that you like to return to? Right now I'm, I'm reading... Dave Grohl's biography. <laughs> and it's interesting to read about a musician's uh, trajectory. And the reason I picked that book is because my uh, 11 year old son just started to play electric guitar. And I'm a classically trained pianist. So I, I don't feel super uh, equipped to guide him on his rock and roll journey. <laughs> but it's interesting to, to read that book because it does start with Dave Grohl's life at that young age and how he developed his relationship with music and how he cultivated his identity as a, as a musician. So I'm reading that in part for him, but mostly what I've transitioned to now is uh, summer reading. So it's guilty pleasures. It's uh, light reading and it's a lot of also of uh, novels in, in French. So I, I was pleased to discover at our local Kingston library, there's a whole wall of French language novels. So I'm pretty sure I'm one of the, the few customers who, who take some, um, books from that section but yeah i've been uh, reading a lot of uh, french novels as well like beach reads if if you will and then trying to get in that summer mood is there a, the one can you give us the name of the one you're reading right now i'm notoriously bad with remembering uh titles but uh i i've read three uh novels recently by uh, david Fuenquinos, and they're just really short novels and uh, they have a really slow and, and relaxing pace. So, you know, the novels by David Fuenquinos, they're all uh, sort of similar in terms of tone and, and style. And I just find them uh, really relaxing to, to read. Another book that I've read recently is, and now I, I can remember that the title is uh, Philippe Lanson's Lambeau. And that book is uh, about one of the uh, Charlie Hebdo journalists who, you know, is severely injured during the terrorist attacks that happened at Charlie Hebdo. And, and he recalls not only the events of that day, but also his whole recovery. And it's never a complete recovery, obviously, not mentally, not physically. But I just thought it was a beautifully written book. It was a bit on the, the heavier side, so I wouldn't call that one a, a light beach read <laughs> uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it really touched me profoundly. Well. Thank you for that. And thank you for three amazing years. I will miss talking to you every two weeks, compelled to hang out with me every two weeks. And that was my, to my benefit. This thing, this battle rhythm, this, and also the CDSN in general would not exist without uh, the contributions you've made over the past, well, for the CDSN four or five years, because that thing took a while to get going. And you're still going to be involved and you're not disappearing, but there'll be less Stephanie and that makes our lives a little less rich. So thank you for all the time and effort you put into this thing. I know you were uncomfortable at the outset, but I always referred to you, I used to refer to you from that conference onwards long ago as the future of Canadian defense. And then you became the president of Canadian defense. And so to have you truly one of the most important people in, in the sphere spend time every week, every couple of weeks talking to me about this stuff it was, it was a huge contribution to me. I, I understand this stuff better. Well, I don't really understand anything really well, but I, I have a better comprehension than I did before, thanks to, to what you've you shared with me over the past three years and you've made me laugh and I think you've made our audience laugh a fair about along the way. So thank you 
And I congratulate you on your next job and also on going off today to help to hood three PhD students that you've mentored for who knows how many years. They are now a chance to graduate at, at Queens. Your contributions across the board will continue and have always been impressive. So thank you for sharing your time with us and with me. Thank you. That's a very moving uh, tribute. And, and yes, we'll continue to regularly interact, but I, I did really enjoy us touching base every two weeks, not only to record the podcast, but our informal chats at the outset before we hit the record button. It's just nice to regularly catch up uh, like that. So I, I will miss Battle Rhythm. I'm really grateful for these three years. And Steve, continue to uh, pay it forward and, and uh, engage in the wonderful mentorship, coaching, and sponsorship that you do of emerging scholars. It had a tremendous impact on my life and my career. And I think you still have many, many years of, of doing that for, for other people in the community. And I thank you for that. I will give you a, a tissue. I, I have them handy here. But, uh, <laughs> uh, we're doing this virtually. Good luck. Enjoy today's graduation. That Their success is your success. So enjoy. And we'll have you on in the fall when it's time to promote that book with a spiffy cover. Thank you. I can't wait.